Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. I'm so glad you're able to join me today because, as you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, and I'm really having a lot of fun sharing it with you. But before I begin, I'm excited to let you know that Algonquin Defining Moments now has its own line of merch. This includes a whole range of items from t-shirts, coffee cups, water bottles, tote bags, journals, phone cases. So if you're up for supporting my Algonquin storytelling efforts in a more direct way, please check out the top of my Picks and Pods page on AlgonquinParkHeritage.com or my podcast hosting platform, www.AlgonquinParkHeritage.Podbean.com. Or you can even go directly to the distributor, www.redbubble.com, and just enter Algonquin Defining Moments as your search term. One other piece of housekeeping is that in this episode, virtually all of the stories I share come from two of my books, Algonquin Voices, Settlement Stories of Canoe Lake Women, that won in 2002 the Allison Prentice Award for Best Women's History that year by the Ontario Historical Society. The other is called Treasuring Algonquin, and it's my 2006 book on the history of leaseholding in Algonquin Park. In my last few episodes, I've shared with you stories about families or individuals such as Gertrude Baskerville, who lived for a time as full-time residents in the park. I thought now that it might be a good time to share with you some of the stories of another group of Algonquin adventurers, those whose ancestors some, as many as five generations back, were invited by the Ontario government to lease small plots of land on a specific set of lakes and build summer cabins in Algonquin Park. Now, I appreciate that there are some listeners who are appalled at the very idea of private leaseholdings in a public park. I also appreciate that I am biased, having been one for 67 years, until circumstances last year forced me to give it up. But having researched the history of every single lease in the park, I have a pretty good idea as to who these people were, who their families are today, and what overall their contributions to the park and its welfare have been over the years. In the next few episodes, I'd like to share some of those experiences. I suppose it's a bit cathartic given my personal loss, but sometimes the best way to move forward is to take a deep look at the past. But before I get to their stories, I wanted to take you back to two interesting factoids to set the context. Up until the late 1890s, the view of government officials, and probably most of the general public as well, was that central to Ontario, and perhaps even Canadian, economic life was agriculture. The North American version of the Industrial Revolution was still generally in its infancy. The Muskoka, Bob Cajun, and Apiango colonization roads were all surveyed and built to attract settlers who would put down roots, clear the land of its trees, and plant crops. One really great story, which you can get from www.muskokabooks.ca, is called The Reluctant Pioneer by Thomas Osborne. It's about his experience as a young man, I think he was 14 or 15 years old, in the Huntsville area in the 1870s. At that time, the original idea, as proposed by the government, was that anyone at least 18 years of age who could, quote, clear at least 12 acres, which I think is about 49,000 square meters, within four years, build a house within a year, and reside on the grant for at least five years, could receive the title to that land. 
In so doing, roadhouses, paddle wheelers for the larger lakes, gristmills, sawmills, post offices, and eventually general stores would be established to support the farmers. Then would come villages, small towns, and the rest would be history. Of course, the idea was a fine one in southern Ontario, but not so great in other areas of Ontario. The problems in the Algonquin Highlands were twofold. Alas, only a thin layer of soil separated a farmer from solid granite. The soil wasn't good enough for sustained agriculture that many of the depot farmers soon found out to their horror. They soon abandoned the land, and within a few decades, these abandoned clearings turned into scrub timber or grass-filled meadows. There are a few photographs on my www.algonquinparkheritage.com website under the Hamilton Haskin collection of photos of one of the depot farm sites on the Apiango Colonization Road near Madawaska that they discovered a few years ago. It's quite interesting. The second problem was that the Algonquin Highlands area wasn't exactly easily accessible. As the Canadian Land and Emigration Company discovered in the 1860s and 70s. Established in 1861 by a group of English gentlemen, headed by the Honorable Mr. Justice T.C. Halliburton, after whom the town of Halliburton was named, the goal of the company was to sell land to settlers, and in return they would build roads, saw and grist mills, and conduct surveys. The Ontario government's idea was to use free land as an incentive to promote rapid settlement of the newly created townships in what eventually became the Halliburton area, and to do so through private enterprise. By 1872, the company had sold over 16,000 acres to settlers. They'd also sold a number of town lots to various purchasers and established a road between the villages of Kennaway and Halliburton. Though the company didn't actually wind up its affairs until 1946, it was active more or less only until 1897, when it found it couldn't compete with the free land being given to settlers by the Ontario government directly. Alas, its people settlement objectives were not, quote, met due to the distance of the townships involved from already settled areas, the absence of good roads, and the roughness of the country. This scheme I discovered whilst researching my most recent book, Governor Edward Curtis Smith's Ontario Retreat. What all of this means is that in the early 20th century, there was a government view that the best way to encourage visitors to Algonquin Park was to have a settlement of some sort nearby. The park superintendent, George Bartlett, who ran things from 1898 to 1922, was the first to encourage the Ontario Department of Lands and Forests to develop Algonquin Park as a tourist resort. As I shared in episode number eight, the Grand Trunk Railway quickly tagged along and established three lodges, the Highland Inn and Cache Lake, Nominegan on Smoke Lake, and Minasing on Burnt Island Lake, that were built between 1908 and 1912. According to Gerald Killen, who has written extensively about the history of Ontario's provincial park system, George Bartlett took a utilitarian approach to park management. His intent was to balance recreational activity with revenue-producing commercial interests, including those of both logging and supporting recreationalists, while still protecting the park watershed and preserving its essential wildness. In the 1930s, the availability of cottage sites was actively promoted both at the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto 
and in periodicals all across the American Northeast, as a means to encourage and thereby increase park use. Frank McDougall, the park superintendent from 1931 to 1941, was also a strong supporter of leaseholders. At least it seemed like that to me from the tone of his correspondence with them during the 1930s and the number of photographs I have of his periodic visits to leaseholders by airplane. But as most of us know, his attitude changed when he became the deputy minister of the Department of Lands of Forests in 1941. But even in 1954, when the policies governing the park changed substantially, leaseholders seemed to be treated just like everyone else. As noted in my book, Treasuring Algonquin, Settlement Stories of a Hundred Years of Leaseholding, and I quote, the long-term plan was to restore the park to a more natural state. In the future, there'd be no new leases, licenses of occupation, or land use permits granted for public, private, or commercial purposes. In addition, existing leases when renewed would not contain what had been up until that point standard renewal clauses. Leaseholders interested in selling would need to grant first right of refusal of their property to the Crown who would negotiate an agreeable selling price. Over time, it was expected that the Crown would acquire and manage all of the commercial lodges and outfitting operations. The youth camps would be shut down, and owners were expected to move their bases of operations out of the park. But over the next 25 years, things changed. The Crown reacquired about 100 leases, and all leases of the commercial outfitting operations. The outfitter facilities were put out to management bid and today are managed by private sector concessionaires. The acquired cottage leaseholds were burned, though in some cases dismantled, and the forest reclaimed the land except for many of the stone fireplaces. In 1978, the government changed its mind about children's camps and decided to allow them to stay in the park, and their leases were extended to 2017. But for leaseholders, nothing changed except for a decision to allow those whose leases were to expire before the last one, in 1996, they were allowed to extend their leases to 1996 as long as they were willing to pay market rents, whatever those were. Why leaseholders were singled out as not being an integral part of the Algonquin community has, in my mind, never been adequately explained. This has always been a conundrum for me, especially since there was ample precedence in the western provinces of long-term government cottage lease coexistence, of which Banff, Alberta, is the most well-known example. Under public pressure, in 1986, the Provincial Parks Council, which was a citizens' advisory committee that reported directly to the then Minister of Natural Resources, chaired by Fred Gray, conducted public forums around the province to measure public perceptions and sentiment about the issue. That spring, over 900 people attended the various hearings and town meetings that were held across the province, and the committee received over 250 briefs, or pieces of correspondence. Their recommendation was to enable, with conditions, lease extensions to 2017 so as to co-terminate with the supposed end of the commercial and children's camp leases. Later, the commercial and children's camp's leases were extended to 2038, and just a few years ago, the same happened with the private leases as well, though with much higher rents and far more regulatory conditions. 
But today there are 304 leases still in existence that have been home to nearly 600 families over the last 100 plus years, representing, according to my calculations, over 8,000 people. Let me say that again. Over 8,000 family members, not including non-family visitors, and that was way back in 2006. This is not a small community. And as I wrote in 2006, nearly 40% were in the hands of the same original leaseholder families, and 37% had changed hands only once. Now, though this number has increased substantially in the last four years due to the substantial rent increase, across these sites, the overall average tenure in those days was just over 68 years. Now since then there's been a new generation which likely doubles or maybe even triples the size of that community. But these folks are not any less important I would think than canoe trippers, day visitors, or car campers. These seasonal residents live and breathe Algonquin, care about its health and its welfare, and know it better, longer, and more intimately than just about any other group of park users. But as I say, I'm significantly biased in this opinion. Anyway, enough politics. As indicated previously, I think it's time to share some of the stories I've collected about the teachers, the ministers, the former lumbermen, the former railway workers, small business owners, veterans, and others who were these early adventurers. And I'm covering the years approximately from about 1905 to about 1935. Now, it might take a couple of episodes because some of the stories are wonderful, but I hope it'll shine a small light on a valuable part of the Algonquin Park human history. I hope that by sharing all these stories, their contributions to the park and its welfare will not be forgotten. And of course, I hope it'll make a few of you laugh out loud and wonder at the foibles of humanity. As mentioned in Episode 3 and in my book, The Paddler's Guide to Canoe Lake, at one time there were as many as 700 residents of Mowat on the northwest side of Canoe Lake. The only other folks around were those who either worked for the railway or one of the lumber companies or were park rangers. Many of these were the earliest leaseholders, and many you have previously met in other episodes, so I won't go into them again. I also won't talk about the children's camp owners, Fanny Case of Northway on Cache Lake, Taylor and Ethel Statton of Camp Amic and Cap Wapamio on Canoe Lake, and Camp Pathfinders Franklin Gray and William Bennett from Source Lake, these I'll leave to a forthcoming episode on children's camping in Algonquin. I've already told you about William McCord on Rock Lake, who settled there in 1897, and we'll also in a later episode talk about the Fields, who settled on Little Joe Lake and later became Erewhon Pines Resort. I also won't talk about the Gilmore Cottages on Canoe Lake, which were taken over by Dr. Alexander Peary and Thomas Bertram in 1905. That's because in, in another episode, their grandson, Sandy Lewis, will be joining me to share some of his family stories. As I think you'll recall, in 1895, the park headquarters was moved from Canoe to Cache Lake, and soon after, in the fall of 1896, Algonquin Park Station came into being, also on Cache Lake, with January 1897 bringing passenger service. Most early visitors, as it turns out, were many of the early leaseholders, and they were anglers at heart and came for the fishing and camping. One interesting character was Dr. William Bell, whom I believe was Cash Lake's first leasehold resident. He built a summer home kitty corner across the lake from park headquarters on a parcel that is now the home of Bartlett Lodge. 
Dr. Bell's original idea was to build a health spa for his Toronto patients where they could recover from tuberculosis or asthma. As mentioned in other Algonquin Park narratives, it was commonly believed by medical professions in those days that the smell of evergreens was good for healing in the lungs. There is no record that Dr. Bell ever acted on his health spa ideas, but he did attain some fame in the Algonquin lore by drafting Algonquin Park's first canoe route map. In order to do so, he must have tripped extensively across the depth and breadth of the park. On my Algonquin Park Heritage website are some images, though dated 1904, that I think are from this early map, which was printed on oilcloth. As you already know, it wasn't until the railway and the highway in the 30s came along that Algonquin became at all accessible. But even with both those modes of transportation, Algonquin Park has never been, until very recently, all that easy to get to. As I've shared previously, the trip from Toronto by train would take all day, and I can remember vividly the four to five hour drives up and back from Toronto on Friday nights and Sundays with grilled cheese and pop stops in Beaverton off of Highway 48. How long to Beaverton was a constant refrain when we traveled in both directions. My lake neighbor's story of traveling on Highway 60 in the 1930s before it got paved was not just lengthy, but hair-raising. As Hank Laurier from Canoe Lake told me in the late 1990s, We lived in Montreal and used to always go to the Gaspé for our holidays. But in 1935, our family doctor felt that mountain air would be better for my brother Carl's allergies. So the family decided to send us to Taylor Statton's camp, Amick, on Canoe Lake. That first year, we went by train, but in 1936, my dad decided to drive us up to camp. It took nine hours to complete the 190 miles journey. The last 85 miles between Golden Lake and Canoe Lake was a single-lane road negotiated at an average speed of 20 miles per hour. We were constantly afraid that we might meet another vehicle coming the other way as we approached the crests of hills. Recollections of getting to the park in those early years were many and varied. George Garland of Smoke Lake's first visit was in 1931, just as the smoke was settling on the remains of the second Mowat Lodge. It had burned down that spring. He and his parents were going up to visit his brother at Camp Amick on Canoe Lake and took the night sleeper train from Toronto to North Bay. The sleeping car they were in was detached from the train at Scotia Junction at 6 a.m. in the morning. The family stepped out to have breakfast at the Station Platform Hotel, which allegedly served the worst food in Canada. The sleeping car was then attached to a mixed train and rolled into Canoe Lake Station about 10 a.m. One of the exciting parts, according to George, was the high trestle over Tonawanda Creek between Ravensworth and McCartney, east of the park, where the train had to proceed very slowly at between 5 and 10 miles an hour. The trains bringing campers to camps would generally consist of 24 sleeping cars that sometimes had to be taken across the trestles near Cache Lake, half at a time because of the enormous load. From Canoe Lake Station, a boat named the Streetcar would transport goods and people from the station. It was a long, narrow boat with glass windows down both sides. Often the evening train was late, so camp staff would be waiting for the train and would have to hang out at the train station until past midnight. If there was mist on the lake, getting back down Potter's Creek and across to the camps without incident was very difficult.
Kay Graham, a Smoke Lake resident, remembers her summer's comings to the park as a teenager. In the early days, we drove from Toronto to Kearney, where our car was left for the summer. After a night in Kearney, we caught the train to Cache Lake. The Highland Inn eventually closed, but the store remained open and we could get fresh milk and bread there. The rest of our supplies, for two or three months, which was mostly canned goods and dried milk, were shipped in. My father, who was an avid fisherman, provided our only sources of fresh protein. Occasionally, visitors would bring us fresh meat and vegetables and fruit with them. In the 1920s, Dr. Armstrong, his wife Jenny, and their six children would journey to Canoe Lake from Ottawa. The oldest Armstrong brothers would walk through to the cottage along the road from Canoe Lake Station, pick up their big freight canoe, and paddle back to the station to meet the rest of the family. A summer's worth of belongings and supplies would be loaded and ferried back to the cottage. Food supplies were ordered from Eaton's catalog, although occasionally they were able to buy some meat through one of the local hotels. The kids fished a lot and stuffed themselves on raspberries and blueberries when they were in season. For years, Valerie Young argued and her first husband would take a train to the Empire Hotel in Huntsville. From there, they would either take a cab into Smoke Lake or hitch a ride with a lumber company truck that frequently went by. For the first few years, the Renwick, Gray, and Harshman families, also on Smoke Lake, all shared the same site, each using it for three weeks at a time. As they told me, we didn't have a car, so we always had to find someone with whom to hitch a ride to Algonquin Park. We couldn't afford two of everything, one for our house in the city and another for the cottage, so we would have to bring blankets, teapots, and other such basics back and forth from Toronto. Initially, there was no real parking lot at the landing, so we would follow a path in from the highway. For years, we had a canoe that we would cache in the woods, but eventually Charlie Muscolo built us a cabin. But we couldn't afford glass windows, and so for years we were open to the elements. Gordon Wilson describes his first Smoke Lake experience. Early the next June, my mother, accompanied by my sisters, drove me to Union Station in Toronto, where I was set aboard a train to join my dad in the park, who had journeyed there some days earlier. At Scotia Junction, the plan was that I would board another train bound for Algonquin Park. I had just turned 10 years of age a few weeks before. The train was composed of a steam engine, tender, baggage car, and one passenger car, in which I was the only passenger. The train creaked toward the park leisurely, stopping now and then, but sometimes it seemed for extended periods of time. During one particularly long stop near sunset at a shack beside the track in the middle of nowhere, I walked to the head of the train only to find the engineer and fireman and two others enjoying a smile in a game of cribbage. It seemed to be an enthralling game as my presence did not seem to have any effect. The train finally squeaked to a stop at Joe Lake Station sometime after midnight, where Dad was waiting. Eventually we got to our canoe and paddled off into a starry black night. Across Canoe Lake we threaded our way through the fallen forest of Lake Bonita and Smoke Creek, and sighted down the length of Smoke Lake by the early cool light of breaking day. I do not recall the last leg of the long journey as we reached Molly's Island where we were camping, but I built a pirate ship with driftwood, fishing line, and other found things which fitted the imagination. We launched the model with fanfare and good wishes for a fine voyage. North it sailed until it disappeared from view around Rangers Point, 
its birch-bark sails seemed to billow strangely as it was carried away in the breeze stern first. Now Ranger's Point is where what as a child we used to call Sandy Point. It was located on the northwest shore where a former ranger hut and fire tower had been built. The fire tower, as I'd mentioned in a previous episode, was way up in the branches of an old pine tree. For us, the site was a key landmark, with this huge rock just off the shore that we could climb on, and a fallen pine tree that extended way into the lake. As Gordon went on to say, on overcast or cool days, we fished on Dad's favorite trolling ground along the shoal, running north from Nabanegan towards Hangar Bay. A pan-fried, freshly caught trout meal seemed to be a part of food fare most days. At park headquarters, Dad looked into available cottage lots. We visited the Portage store, not yet officially open for the season. On another day, we visited the Smoke Lake hangar and were shown around by the park superintendent. Over the next few days, we visited many potential cottage sites, sometimes picnicking on them when the bugs were tolerable. Towards the end of our two weeks, we canoed to the northwest arm of Smoke Lake. Opposite the old highway, the shoreline was heavily mined with fallen trees. Captured in this log jungle was the model pirate ship that I'd launched a week before. On Lake of Two Rivers, a grass airfield was built in the 1930s as a depression relief project, and some leaseholders with airplanes would fly in. Though used regularly, the Lake of Two Rivers airfield presented some challenges that needed to be kept in mind. When asking about the conditions at the airstrip for friends arriving by airplane, Lester Graff from Smoke Lake was advised that, quote, they should experience no difficulty in landing, but it would be well to circle the field low to locate any deer which might be feeding there. Rick Rigby at Cache Lake would arrange to be picked up by flying over the lake and dipping the wings of his plane over the cabin. Someone would boat over to the parking lot and drive to the Lake of Two Rivers airstrip to pick him up. Upon one landing, a wolf ambled up to the plane and sat there watching to see what this giant creature would do, or if anything interesting was inside if it was moving. Rigby had to wait until the wolf moved on before disembarking from the plane. In 1970, the airport was closed and now is allegedly the best blueberry patch in the park. Flow planes, of course, could land directly on the lakes, and many did. Art Hollingsworth on Source Lake used to fly in and land on the lake. He had two sons who became fighter pilots in the military and would occasionally fly low over the lake and wave their wings at their father as they flew by. Bob Fowler on Cache Lake was a test pilot in Toronto and would keep his otter plane anchored in the bay. According to Bob, flying in was easy, but not so flying out, as you'd have to taxi all over the lake to get the right launching spot, given wind speed and direction, and the fact that a float plane could kick up quite a wave. George Elms on Rock Lake used to fly his CB amphibious plane to Rock Lake and tie it up to a floating barrel just off his dock. Bob Clappison shared one especially fun experience of helping leaseholders get to their cottages that occurred when he was 16 years old. But before I do, I need to give you some context as these specific leaseholders, Hannah Gillander, who was from England, and Annie Krantz from Philadelphia, were quite the pair. Both were school teachers and lively friends. Their first experience coming to Algonquin Park was in 1923, when they came up for a vacation to Nominegan Lodge on Smoke Lake. 
Their intent was to start a camp for girls on Smoke Lake. They had a wonderful visit, selected some choice land on a picturesque point, and in December of that year wrote a note requesting a lease to the department. As Annie wrote, and I quote, Miss Gillander, being British, has been urged by many Canadians to establish a camp catering to the Canadian girls. All being in education, we believe we can establish an institution that will be in harmony with the spirit that decided to set aside Algonquin Park as a national playground. Unquote. I'm not exactly sure what being British had to do with one's competency in setting up a children's camp, but regardless, they unfortunately were unaware of the department's policy at the time of issuing only one lease per person and had applied for nine leases on Smoke Lake in various sites in their names. Now, why they didn't request a license of occupation, as was the custom for activities of a commercial nature, is not known. But reading their correspondence with the department decades later and having seen the same, quote, suspicious way, unquote, of treating Esther Kaiser on Smoke Lake, Miss Webb on Canoe Lake, and other women trying to establish commercial ventures in the park, it's not hard to think that major sexism was at play here. But that's another story. In this one, for some reason, the department viewed this application as, quote, a scheme to avoid paying the $75 commercial lease fee. Unquote, and was not supportive of their efforts. For many months, the ladies corresponded with the department trying to get their application in a form that would gain approval. Eventually, in the spring of 1924, a license of occupation was approved for a five-acre parcel, but by then their vision of a girls' camp faded and the ladies lost interest in the Smoke Lake property. After a few glasses of wine, I often speculate that Taylor Statton's friendship with the park superintendent may have brought to Taylor's attention the plans of Gillander and Krantz. As soon after their arrival on the scene, the Statons decided to start Camp Wapameo for girls on Little Wapameo Island. But all of that is pure speculation. At the same time as these two were planning their Smoke Lake Girls Camp idea, they stumbled upon a small two-story log cabin that was owned by Maud Perkins on Canoe Lake. Maud's brother John had built it for her in 1920, on the top of a small ridge opposite the north end of Big Wapameo Island. The cabin had one room upstairs, one room down, and a summer kitchen at the rear. Alas, Mrs. Perkins had never visited Canoe Lake, so the cabin had never been used. She agreed to sell it to Gillander and Krantz in 1925, who immediately settled in. Both were in love with Algonquin and continued to come to Canoe Lake each summer. In the early years, Gillander and Krantz had only a rowboat and were often seen rowing about the lake. It's likely that they would have been met at the train and transported to their cabin by someone on the lake. In later years, they had a small wooden boat with a little 1931 vintage engine. It usually had enough juice to get them started in the morning, but not to get them back in the afternoons, after their tours around the lake. In the 1940s, they would hail anyone passing by and ask if they would tow them back to their dock. Customary was an invitation, then, to afternoon tea. After they retired to Florida, train service was no longer provided, so they would arrive in an old Buick with balding tires that looked like it barely made the trip. But as I say, one summer the two arrived at Canoe Lake Dock and asked Bob, who was hanging out there, if he'd help them unpack their car and load all of their summer supplies of goods into their boat. Of course, being a friendly neighbor, he agreed. 
and then once the boat was loaded, they asked if he could drive them up the lake to their cabin as they were unsure of the reliability of their motor. Again, Bob agreed to help them out. Once he'd gotten them safely to their dock, they asked if he could help them unload all their supplies and haul them all the way up the hill to their cabin. Once more, he graciously agreed, but by this time was expecting some kind of monetary reward for his efforts. Alas, he was eventually bitterly disappointed, as his reward for all of that effort was a hearty thanks and a large, fresh Florida orange. Though they loved their spot, Gillinder and Krantz expressed concerns about the handling of garbage at the Camp Wapameo dump that was directly west of their cabin. As they wrote so poignantly to the park superintendent in 1926, quote, not only is the smell of garbage and disinfectant distressing, but the fact that wash water is going straight into the lake is a menace to our health, unquote. Another problem with the dump was that it attracted bears, a major nuisance for them, and later their neighbors, the Adaskins. As the nearest cabin worth visiting, bears were constantly breaking in and frightening the two half to death. As Annie wrote to the park superintendent, Our departure was hastened last fall because of a large black bear which broke into the kitchen and spent a whole night upsetting things and us. We restored the place to perfect order, but on arriving this year found it again in complete disorder. Just this week we had two visits from a bear and are afraid. In their later years, Francis and Maria Daskin, who settled just around the point to the west from the two ladies, were their designated saviors. Gillinder and Kranz had an old school bell that they would ring when they needed help, and when it rang, one or the other of the Adaskins would hot-foot it over to see what was up. For those unaware, Francis Adaskin was a singer under contract with the Canadian National Railway and sang at all of their hotels across Canada. Her husband, Murray, was a composer and a professor of music. In 1946, they had spent the summer staying at a cabin on the lake and wanted a site of their own. The next summer, they took out a lease on the entryway to Whiskey Jack Creek. Everett Farley built a main cabin for them and a studio where they kept their piano. There are several versions of the story as to how the piano actually got there, but the most entertaining was one which had the piano being brought down Joe Creek to the cottage floating on a raft of canoes. A note from Dr. Charles Hendry, one of the first counselors at Camp Amick, remembers well that day. There was no road, so they fastened six canoes together and ferried it to the campsite on Canoe Lake. Malcolm Scott, who played concert piano, and Reginald Golden mounted the shaky raft and began to play and sing Danny Boy as they paddled down the lake. Each summer, after they'd settled in residence, the chief would invite Murray and Francis to Amic and Wapameo to play or visit with musically inclined campers. Folks at the North End used to be serenaded frequently by Francis when she practiced her scales and performances from the end of their dock. Murray later composed the Algonquin Symphony and a very famous piece of music, at least to Taylor Staten Camp alumni, and also the music from the Camp Amic Evening Grace. On that note, I think it's time for another musical interlude. So I've got another Walk of My Whaler song called Lonesome River from their Un, Deux, Trois, Four album from 2017.
Can I hear you roar? Can I drink your water? When my throat gets sore Can I walk beside you? Everywhere you flow Can I wash my hands in you? Tell me all you know Hey, singing songbird Can I hear your song? Wake me when you're going Promise you'll come back again When the winter's gone From the cold and rain Can I lie beneath you When I'm old and two decades, most of the leaseholding took place on Cash Lake. Though, of course, not true in every situation, often it went something like this. In the early years of the 20th century, avid fishermen would pick sites on various lakes that they would use as yearly campsites. After a few years, they would build a small shack in which to store a canoe, life jacket, and paddles. In those days, all cooking was done outdoors over an open fire pit with pots and pans and other cooking utensils, hung on nails hammered into a board between two white pine trees that loggers had most likely left behind. Many would eat on dapple gray and blue tinware with a wooden spoon and pen knight as utensils, likely carved by one or the other of the anglers. 
foodstuffs would be kept cool in a sunken pit or in a nearby stream covered over and weighed down and latched so that the bears and raccoons couldn't get into it. Then, as much as a decade or more later, these early settlers would obtain an official lease. At first, a tent platform or a small sleeping cabin called a bunkie would usually be built either from scratch or from a prefab kit. Later, a larger living space with an indoor rather than outdoor camp kitchen would be added as the family grew. In my family's case, though we didn't arrive until 1951, the story was more or less the same. My parents camped for the first few years and then built a sleeping bunkie, and then later a main cabin that included a living room with fireplace and kitchen space. The main cabin was made of pre-made walls that came from a lumber recycling place in Toronto and were hauled up to Canoe Lake on a borrowed trailer. The neighbors were then all recruited to ferry them individually across the lake suspended between two canoes. Much later, after my brothers came along, my parents added a few more sleeping cabins and later converted one of the sleeping cabins into a bathhouse. And then even later, we added a screen-in porch with plastic inserts in spring and fall that provided protection from the wind and cold. Prefab kits were often bought from the Halliday Company Limited, who sold ready-made kits that included all of the components needed to build a summer cabin. Everything from framing and rafters to paint, nails, windows, and roofing were supplied, usually for a two- to three-bedroom, six-meter-by-eight-meter building. Here's Rory Mackay's family's experience. My grandfather's cabin was known in the family as Little Cottage, and it was built on the west end of his lot. My father's cabin became known as the, quote, Big Cottage, and was built on the east end of his lot. The two cottages were separated by what park records refer to as a bumper lot. The little cottage was a prefabricated cottage delivered by train to Algonquin Park Station at Cache Lake. It was transported by truck to kilometer 35 on Highway 60 and then carried into the building site. For some reason, the plans for the cottage ascent were found to be unsuitable and were modified to suit our needs. This entailed cutting long boards shorter putting shorter boards together to make longer lengths, and custom building all the window frames. This made maintenance and putting up shutters quite a game in later years, as nothing ever fit right as the cottage aged. The brush was not cleared right to the lake as efforts were made to have these cottages blend in with the landscape and not be too visible from the lake. The first cottage on the big cottage site was a Halliday Bunky Jr., it arrived in seven sections, and three men from Whitney were hired to assist in carrying it down to its site, near a flat rock and a cedar tree. Only nine square meters in area, it served as living room and a bedroom for the family. Nearby was a table and two benches, covered by an awning made of a ground sheet, which provided shelter for cooking and eating on rainy days. Later, a proper-sized cottage with two bedrooms was constructed on this original site, and the Bunky Jr. was moved a short distance west and uphill. The new cottage had a large living room dominated by a substantial fireplace built by a local stonemason from the rock behind the cottage. Only the three large horizontal stones that made the mantelpiece were from elsewhere. The cottage itself was a frame construction with half-log siding and sat on a foundation of stones and cedar posts, with an enclosed crawl space beneath. Across the front of the living room was a veranda with large windows overlooking the lake. The windows, each about a meter wide, swung upward and could be fastened to chains suspended from the ceiling. 
This afforded a breeze through screens without having swinging windows in the way. A kitchen area was added several years later. The Racy's experience on South Tea Lake was not as smooth sailing. In their case, the side of the road at the Smoke Creek Bridge was where their prefab cabin components were dropped off. Luckily, it was late August and nearby Camp Tamaqua wasn't in session, so Lou Handler, the owner of the camp, offered up the camp barge to transport the cabin lumber to their site on the west side of the lake. As Midge Racy recounted in 2004, we had ordered a small prefabricated cabin to be delivered on the day of our arrival, which of course didn't arrive until several days later. My husband Herbert and son Bob worked with the tape measure and leveled to build the foundation. Our prefabricated company recommended cedar posts for the foundation, but though we tried to shore up the foundation with cement blocks, they were not sufficient to level the grade. The three kids, Bob and young girl twins, ended up lugging stones of all shapes and sizes to Herbert, from sturdy flat ones to large fill-in ones that even made Bob groan to carry. Finally, with many small stones precariously balanced to fill in, we managed to nail down the foundation beams. The next morning, Mike Lundy, the then camp director, and two friends helped carry the sides and ends of our prefab down the hill and onto the barge, haul them through the channel, across the lake to our place, unload them onto the rocks, and then carry them up the hill and deposit them in the spot where they were to be erected. At last, Bob and Herbert were able to start the construction and laid all the joists onto the sills, only to find that the company had not sent enough for the 16-inch centers they had advertised. The only option was to space them unevenly. Many of the flooring boards were quite warped from the previous day's torrential rains, but the fellows did their best to force them into shape. We knew the house wasn't going to have a good floor because the cracks were too big, but with our unskilled labor, we did the best we could. As it turned out, the company had sent us a few extra pieces of flooring, and we would use them eventually for patching over the years. Next to our tent were our roof rafters, roof sheeting and trim, siding, lumber, and odd unknown pieces. We hadn't the foggiest notion of where it was all supposed to go, but eventually we assumed all would become evident as we hammered the puzzle pieces together. The grade level didn't look too steep when the site was cleared for the building's placement, but now, with the flooring on, we noticed how high the front of the cabin really was. We gathered some large stones to bolster the still, somewhat unsteady foundation and to also provide a mound-like step from which to climb in the front door. The next step was attaching the sides and the ends of the cabin, we arranged the cedar posts as rollers, and with much grunting and groaning, heaving and resting, we got both ends up the hill and ready to lift onto the flooring. I'm sure it was from different motives, but the fellows and I each had extra strength. I never knew I could tug, pull, shove, hold heavy things, and lug the way I did with those two men. I thought I'd be limp and aching from so much exertion, but I had no adverse effects from it. We then worked at clearing a large path from the lake to the flooring where everyone could walk while carrying the large sections. Suddenly it dawned on someone that the room partitions were still outside leaning against a tree. Carefully one corner was pried open a wee bit and the partitions were warily slithered inside and the sides were once again fused solidly into position. We were now enclosed and protected on all sides. 
Then Bob and Herbert started to build the roof. Neither one had experience and therefore no skill in this type of labor. They set the rafters, spliced the ridge pole together, and started putting on the roof boards. They were cedar, but they were grade five lumber. They got about half of one side on when the rain came. They tried to keep working, but it was pouring so hard and the wind was whipping at the nails in their hands that eventually they had to stop. The majority of the next day was spent putting on the roof boards and then the roofing, with Herbert directing the children and me as to what to fetch, hold, and carry. The sun seemed to be rapidly moving westward. By now we'd learned the black night would pounce on us at any moment. The roof wasn't quite finished along the ridge pole, but we decided to spend the night in our cabin anyway. It was the best gift the kids and I could have given them. We all lay huddled on the battered, bare-torn mattresses on the floor, wrapped in our sweaters and blankets against the cold, gazing through the open spaces in the roof, watching the stars wink at us as the moonlight blessed us. Thankfully, it didn't rain during the night, and we were awakened by the sun's warm smile. The fellows finished the ridgepole section and put on all the roofing we had. Unfortunately, the company had not sent enough. It was the middle of the afternoon when we finished clearing away the brush and heavy logs in the front so our water line would look neat. Later that day, our neighbors, Bess and James Murray, canoed over. James had told Herbert that he'd come and donate his expertise on stair building. Because of the slope of our land, the front door entrance was shoulder height. Herbert and Bob had constructed a small porch but gave up trying to figure out how to make the stairs. By now, we were getting weary of the entrance pattern. Back up, run, step on the piled-up rocks, jump up and fling your body onto the porch. The twins, of course, had to be lifted up and down. And by the end of each day, even the fellows were calling more often, I need a boost. To have a young architect's advice and help with the stairs was awesome. Bess and I sat in the warm sun watching these two brilliant men walk around pondering the pros and cons of the land's topography, the appearance, should it be a side entrance or a front entrance, and exactly what materials were immediately available without going to Huntsville. Jim started figuring out the ratio of treads and rises and began explaining to my husband the what, whys, and wherefores of the project so they could visualize the progress as they went along. Herbert, Bob, and Jim each worked austidiously, cutting and hammering. One section was ready to be fitted to the porch, but that set of steps leaned precariously. Bess and I turned our chairs to face the lake, so our dear ones would not see us quietly chuckling. But not being quitters, the three again rose to the challenge and before dark brought it to fruition. We had real steps by which to enter the door. The kids ran up and down them a few times to make sure they were like the ones at home. There were no stars or moon to keep us company that night, and being cowardly, we all went to bed on the floor with our raincoats on. The next morning, the fellows began clearing a large area of all tree limbs, branches, rocks, stones, and other foreign items that were on the sand between two tall trees at the edge of the lake. The project naturally led to clearing the sunken logs from the waterfront area, and soon the kids were swimming in a nice beach area. Herbert then took one of the long, thick ropes that had been tied around our possessions on the trailer, picked up a blown-out tire that we had, and threaded the rope through it. Each fellow then tied an end onto a huge branch of a tree standing near the water, and the tire was soon off the ground, swinging enticingly. The kids' squeals and jumps of anticipation 
pleased the givers as they watched them sit on it together for their first ride. Soon they were pumping the swing out over the water and dropping off into the lake. With that completed, my two carpenters decided they'd lace some logs together, secure the platform by nailing an X underneath from leftover lumber, and anchored it to an old stump some ways from our ancient stone point. It made a marvelous combination of breakwater, dock, and sunbathing spot. Many of the log cabins one sees today were built by locals with local logs sourced, approved by the Department of Lands and Forests, and paid for by the leaseholder. Builders included Charlie Muscolo, whom I mentioned in episode 22, who was the brother of Gertrude Baskerville, Everett Farley on Canoe Lake, Jim Bartlett and Charlie Skews on Cash Lake, who also built fireplaces and docks respectively, and later the Lukasavage brothers, who also built Erewhon Pines. On Smoke Lake, Al Gordon wanted to build a log of the large white pine square timbered variety. So in the spring of 1950, he purchased a building made of square timbers called Brady House in Halliburton County. He arranged for it to be dismantled and the logs moved to Smoke Lake. At the time, he was a forestry student attending university in New Brunswick. So he arranged for a local contractor to move the timbers to a main road from where they could be hauled to Smoke Lake. On his return from New Brunswick, he came to Smoke Lake to find no timbers, and upon inquiring from the contractor, found out that an illness had prevented him from completing the job. The following winter, the logs got moved to the main road in Halliburton County, but the trucker who was to bring the logs to Smoke Lake broke the contract and failed to transport the logs to the park. Eventually, the following fall, Gordon contracted with another trucker, and to assure the job, paid him in advance. Once again, when he came up in the spring, there were no timbers. This time, he immediately drove to Dorset to complain to the trucker and was promised a delivery date of early summer. Finally, the timbers arrived, and Gordon then spent his honeymoon tumbling the huge timbers into the water and booming them across Smoke Lake to his site. At one point, the boom broke, and dozens of Smoke Lakers went all over the lake helping to round up the logs. He then hired Felix Lukasavich and his brother, to transform this two-story house into a one-story cabin. Felix taught him how to use a broad axe properly and later gave him one of his broad scoring axes. It was also very common for leaseholders to build their cabins from scratch themselves, regardless of whether or not they had any skills in the work. Carl and Hank Laurier on Canoe Lake decided to build a do-it-yourself Quonset hut. Neither had any building experience, so the hut was not properly squared or leveled, and consequently, it barely lasted the first few winters, as it was built on a very steep slope. Some others made bad choices in builder selection, which Reverend Charles Zorbach of Rock Lake discovered in 1933 when his best-laid plans ran into trouble, as he informed the park superintendent. No doubt you will remember that I engaged Jim Highland last fall to put up a log cabin for me. As it turned out, Jim was unable to do the job, so his son, Rory, undertook it. Perhaps you've heard what sort of a job Rory did. He must have been drunk all the time. It is absolutely impossible to describe to you the miserable product of his efforts. In the first place, there's no foundation. The bottom logs are already slipping. He evidently picked up odds and ends of logs to throw together and cover with a roof. 
there are two logs the same size in the entire structure. As a result, there are six and even more inches between some of the logs. These places are filled in with odd pieces, just shoved in as chinkers. I don't believe that there are more than three full logs in the entire building. The structure is a conglomeration of odd-sized pieces. It really defies description. As Ranger Bowers said, there isn't a real log in the whole thing. Of course, I am greatly disappointed. The only thing I can do is have the cabin torn down and salvage what I can in the way of logs and lumber. I can save the doors, the lumber in the floor and roof, and possibly part of the roofing, but it will have to be rebuilt from the foundation up. Ranger Bowers is going to try and find a reliable man to do the job for me, but it will mean building a new cabin and will require new logs, as the present logs are not matched, and even a magician couldn't build a cabin out of them. I realize that to build a new cabin I will require more logs, counting those already used, than such a building would ordinarily require. I am wondering if under these circumstances, these unusual circumstances, you would permit me to replace the cabin, charging me only for the logs used in the original structure. I am fully aware that this is a rather unusual request and would never suggest it under other circumstances. But the logs now standing are honestly worth nothing, and I know that you would agree with me that they were picked with no reference to their value. If you think perhaps I'm exaggerating, I wish you would call Ranger Bowers on the phone and ask him what he thinks about it. Of course, I realize fully that this whole affair is my own tough luck, and that you may consider my request unreasonable. If so, please do not hesitate for a moment to say so. I think that you can see my end of it, however. The cabin has to be torn down. Additionally, logs will have to be found. New materials will have to be purchased and labor incurred to erect the cabin. In other words, practically all that I've sunk in it so far is just so much throwaway. Quite naturally, I am not anxious to pay for twice as many logs as I actually use. But if the present logs were good and only the workmanship bad, I wouldn't make this suggestion. But since the logs are not good, most of them cannot be used in erecting the new cabin. I assure you that if you will see fit to grant this request, it will be greatly appreciated. Now, of course, not all cabins are made of wood, as I discovered in the summer of 2005. I was visiting with Peggy and Hal King on Cache Lake. The outside looked like wood siding, but in fact it was made of tin. Inside one wall there was this huge window covered with signatures and notes of all shapes and sizes. It reminded me of a college yearbook with its memories of bountiful and joyful visits by extended family and friends. Above my head was a beam on which was recorded the yearly mouse catch in their live mouse cage, counting mice and recording the totals they'd been doing since the 1940s. I noted with interest that at least according to their count, the peak population year for mice was 1978. In the kitchen, there was a huge wood stove, now used infrequently, that dominated the room. It reminded me of how central kitchens often and still are to family and community life. Later, the Department of Lands and Forests initiated stricter regulations and required that within 18 months of obtaining a lease, leaseholders build improvements worth at least $500 on the site. $500 was a lot of money at the time, so it wasn't unusual for leaseholders to submit a yearly $500 plan 
that incrementally added new pieces until the desired edifice was constructed. Though not always enforced, to meet the spirit of the regulations, a respective leaseholder was required to submit for approval a plan and a detailed description of what was going to be built. This included not just new structures, but any change of any kind to dimensions, such as the adding of a veranda, replacing a dock, and so forth. Some park superintendents had strong opinions as to the design of the cabins and their color schemes, as Park Superintendent Miller wrote in 1925 concerning a cabin to be built on Cache Lake. A proposed two-story cottage to be erected is more pretentious and elaborate than any other building on Cache Lake. These are the most desirable types of tenants, and I would respectfully urge an early consideration of the plans, as they are most anxious to have the cottage near completion before the snow flies. I must say that it is a source of pleasure to me to see so unique a building being erected on Cache Lake. It will be an ornament to the lake. Some of the other cottagers might well feel ashamed for their cottages or shacks stained with the cheapest and dirty shantyman's red color. The color scheme adopted by the department as a standard is white with green trimmings, which fits in so well and harmonizes with the woods and rock background in Algonquin Park. In a 1926 letter to the department deputy minister concerning the plan submitted for another cabin on Cache Lake, the park superintendent wrote, You might note that of plans recently submitted, these are of a much more elaborate type of cabin than the general run, and I am pleased to see and know that a higher standard is being established. And in a letter to Lake Brule resident Lennox Irving, the superintendent wrote, I received your pen and ink sketch of the plan which is in the course of construction on Barnet Island on McIntosh Lake. Permit me to congratulate you on the plan submitted. It is a big advance on the style of cottage usually erected in the park. I am continuously urging a much higher standard and am pleased to say that there are half a dozen cottages on Cache Lake of recent construction that are a credit to the builders. Some years ago, an old thing appeared to be good enough for Algonquin. A shanty, hastily thrown up and stained a dirty old shantyman's red, would answer the purpose. But now I insist on a more costly house, and every new house must be painted white with green trim, or some attractive, lively, inviting sh light shade, such as cream or light fawn color. There are too many good houses which have been ruined by the application of creosote stain or shantyman's red, but it is the desire of the department to get away from the dull, dingy, dreary-looking aspect of such coloring, reminding one of old coal sheds. I hope you've enjoyed these stories of some of the early leasehold cabins and all the challenges they ran into in constructing them. In the next episode, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what life was actually like and also introduce you to some of the really fun characters. If you'd like to take a look at some of the pictures of some of those building experiences, please check out my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com.